The word of God says in Exodus chapter 9 verses 8 through 12, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses." This is the word of the Lord. We progress into this sixth plague and the final plague of this second cycle. Now, there's a phrase in English that we use called uh, turning the tables, turning the tables. And what, what that phrase means is if you turn the tables on someone, you change the situation completely. Um, so instead of it causing problems for you, it causes problems for them or perhaps vice versa. Uh, imagine for a minute a chess table. So we're playing chess and perhaps um, I have, I'm about to get you in checkmate if you know the game. And then at that point, what happens? Well, the whole table gets turned. So now instead of uh, you almost being in checkmate. Now I'm the one that's almost in checkmate because you get my situation. Um, if that's not clear, I think it will become very clear by the end. But this is the idea of turning the tables. Um, this is what's going to happen in today's text. You see, uh, Pharaoh thinks he has the upper hand. He thinks he has the children of Israel, the Hebrews, right where he wants them. But what he's forgetting is who is actually in control, and that is the Lord God. So as we walk through these few verses, and, and, and let me say, a plague which is oftentimes skipped over or included alongside another plague or in another message, um, let me say there's incredible richness. There's a wealth for us to go and glean. So uh, I, I trust that you have a heart prepared to receive what God has for us to receive today. Uh, there's three things we really want to understand as we walk through this portion of Scripture. There is an imagery, uh, an imagery in the picture that we need to understand. There is an irony in the plague. And then there is an inflexibility of Pharaoh. So there is an imagery, an irony, and finally an inflexibility. Uh, also, I, I just want to remind you that as we walk through these nine plagues, and of course the final, the tenth, is the, the Passover, the death of the firstborns in the land of Egypt, or all those who don't have blood on the doorpost, and obviously we're not there yet. What I want you to remember is uh, plagues one and two are announced, plague three happens, that's cycle one. Plagues four and five are announced, plague six just happens, that's cycle two. And then the same thing will happen with the third cycle. Seven and eight will be announced and nine will just happen. So here we are on plague six and it follows plague five. When I say it follows, that, that might seem redundant, but the point is it, it, there, there, there's no announcement to Pharaoh that this is coming. It just comes. But as we walk to the imagery 
of this particular plague, um, there's a few different things we want to notice in the imagery, and we're going to go through these, all right? Uh, in fact, four things specifically. And, and so as we walk through this, I want us to notice that there is a memory. There's a memory. Then there's going to be a manifestation. Then there'll be a mockery. And finally, there is a match. You say, where are you going with this? Well, let's just walk through the text. First, let's go back to verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. We should ask right away, is it significant that God is using the imagery or using a kiln, using soot involved in uh, disseminating these boils across the land of Egypt? I mean, God could have just struck the people with boils, but he didn't. He said, I want you to go to this kiln. I want you to take this soot. I want you to throw it in the air. There's a whole demonstration happening. And that demonstration is not for uh, no reason, but rather God is seeking to give us a picture. He wants us to notice something. So what is it that we are to notice? Well, that's exactly what we want to look into. See, this kiln that is mentioned, is, it's a furnace, but it was really a picture, an emblem for the bitter cruelty of slavery that the children of Israel were under while they were in Egypt. And the word being used here is kibshan. It's only used four times in scripture, uh, and it refers to something used for firing materials. And so very typically, it would be used for firing materials. Bricks. Now, is this not ringing a bell? If you've walked with us through this whole series, you can even go back and listen to Lessons from a Mud Brick. What you realize is kilns played a huge role in the building of Egypt, but also in the bondage of the children of Israel, because this is where they would be making bricks. So we have this kiln. But uh, it's interesting, this word kibshan that I just mentioned, it comes from another word, kabash, which means to subdue or bring into bondage, to make serve by force if necessary. Do you see how there's a connection here? There is this emblem, this kiln, a picture of making bricks. But also, if you really break the one down the word, we've got slavery right in there. So the, the picture of slavery, the picture of their very um, servitude and work, it's all right here in this word kiln. John Currid, a commentator, said this, the type of furnace spoken of here was probably a kiln for burning bricks. The furnace then was a symbol of the oppression of the Hebrews, the sweat and tears they were shedding to make bricks for the Egyptians. Thus, the very soot made by the enslaved people was now to inflict punishment on their oppressors. So you can see, the tables are turning. Um, and obviously, yes, this is just retribution, we could say, um, for the way that Egypt had been treating the children of Israel. Um, but at the same time, too, you remember that God didn't bring them out because they were such a wonderful people. But rather, this was his choosing. And this was a people through which he was going to work and declare his glory his goodness. But we'll come back to that a little bit later on. Um, there's another commentator, Ellicott, who noted that when ashes from one of these kilns were made the germs of a disease that was a sore of infliction, their own wrongdoing became to the Egyptians a whip wherewith God scourged them. And so the picture is there. So the first aspect that we see here um, is that there is 
a distinct memory, a memory being shown. And that memory is the memory of their servitude, the memory of that slavery, the memory of making bricks. It's all there in the kiln. But moving on, there's also a manifestation. See, notice the language used. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln. And then what? And let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. So that phrase, take handfuls of soot, take handfuls of soot. Um, th th this is interesting. It, it says they're, they're directed to take piach. This is not ashes. This is actually soot. And it's a word only used twice. And it's both times it's used in relation to this plague um, in verses 8 and verse 10. But the word piach comes from the word puach. And you might say, okay, what's really the significance? But puach is to breathe or to blow. Now that kind of makes sense because soot being like this uh, fine dust, which we see later on, um, or becomes a fine dust, um, if you blow it, it does go out, right? But this is the word it comes from, to breathe or to blow. But why manifestation? What is being manifested? Well, this is where things get interesting. You see, even though the word is for soot, it comes from the word to breathe or to blow. And specifically, that word is used in reference to lying, to speaking lies, to breathing out lies. So, and by the way, I'm not stretching this. You can go to the book of Proverbs and see Proverbs chapter 6, verse 19, Proverbs 14, verse 5, Proverbs 19, verse 5, or a couple I want to read for you. Proverbs 14, 25, a true witness delivers souls, but a deceitful witness speaks, puach, speaks lies. Or how about Proverbs 19, 9, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks, puach, speaks lies shall perish you see this soot was going to be blowing throughout the whole land and it's set in in contrast or it's set to manifest that what was going on previously were the lies of pharaoh the lies of devaluation we've spoken of this often already that he he, he lied about who these children of israel really were what their value truly was that they were just to be subjected to to his servitude rather than that they were chosen by God for this uh, beautiful promise to reveal the Savior of the world. Um, and, and so there is a manifestation happening here. Uh, the object, object lesson also continues on in even how, um, how they were to disseminate this soot, and that is they were to throw it in the air. And, and when the phrase is used here, take handfuls of soot, it literally means that which fills the hollow of the hand. That which fills the hollow of the hand. So take that handful of soot and throw it in the air. Now, to us, that doesn't make much of a point. It's just details in the plague. But if we walk back to that time, there is a picture going on which gets more vivid as we go. And this enters that third phase, which is mockery. There's mockery in this imagery. You see, it's, it's not just a manifestation of the lies that Pharaoh was telling. It's not just a memory of the servitude that they were under. There's a mockery. What is this mockery? Well, the Companion Bible makes an interesting point um, or suggestion that this was also the type of kiln where they did the bricks, but also that would contain an altar. Now, did it 
I'm not sure, but either way, the point is going to be made. So don't get sidetracked by saying, ah, that might not be the case. All right, I'll acknowledge that might not be the case. But what it says is it contained an altar where human sacrifices were offered, and it was burned to appease their god Typhon, the evil one, and thus to avert the plagues. So in other words, there were these kilns as well that had altars inside. Think of it almost like a crematory, right? Where they would burn the bodies of um, human sacrifices, and then get this, what would they do with that? Well, the priests would throw the ashes or the soot in the air and wherever the ashes were blowing, the idea was their evil would be averted. So what's happening? Soot from a kiln thrown in the air and evil averted. Well, obviously they were doing that through their gods and through what they believed the true power, where true power was found. So what is God saying? He said, I'm going to have you mock, imitate exactly what your priests are doing. You're going to go inside that kiln, that kiln that represents uh, your abuse of both religion, faith, and also your abuse of souls, people. And I want you to take that and throw it in the air. And when they throw it in the air, it doesn't avert evil, but it brings on the very affliction that, uh, that the Egyptians would have liked to have avoided, for sure. So there was this mockery happening in the action. There was also a mockery happening even in the fact that the priests, uh, it, it, we're going to see this in a little bit, they're not even going to be able to stand before Pharaoh. Um, well, why? Because they're covered in boils. They're covered in this affliction which also means that they would have been unable to do their priestly duty. There's a mockery that here Moses and Aaron are doing the priestly duty of the Egyptian priests and, of course, to uh, a complete situation of the tables being turned. So I want you to understand in this little passage, as we read it, we don't see what the children of Israel would have seen. We can miss so much by the kiln, the soot, the throwing it in the air, because what is happening? There's a memory, there's a manifestation, there's a mockery, but there's something else. There's also a match, a match. Now, when I'm talking about a match, I'm not talking about lighting a match, you know, fire on the end. I'm talking about a match, like a, a, like a football match, um, soccer match. Um, I'm talking about like a, a match as in a duel taking place. And why do I say that? Well, look at verse 9. Verse 9 says that it, will become, it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt. Fine dust. I grew up in West Africa. Fine dust permeates everything. It gets into electronics. It gets into the cracks of furniture. It, it gets into literally every aspect of life. It permeates. Um, so the plague would have permeated the land of Egypt. But where is match seen in all this? Well, see, as, as the dust would have settled, um, we saw very clearly that it was done in the sight of Pharaoh. I think that's, that's important right there. Um, but the word dust is a buck. And it, it, it's speaking of um, particles that are very small. They, they go on the wind, so they get carried throughout the land. But the noun form, see the noun form of the verb abak, it actually means to wrestle, to wrestle. So 
what I want you to kind of picture here is this fine dust. When is fine dust or when is dust stirred up? Well, when when two wrestlers are in the dirt and they're wrestling, man, I'm telling you, dust is going everywhere. Again, I grew up in West Africa. I grew up in a desertic land. And, and when kids would play in the dirt, man, there is a cloud of dust. It's kind of like Pigpen in the Peanuts cartoon, right? There's that cloud of dust surrounding them. Well, what's happening here? There's a play on the word fine dust, which in the noun form to wrestle. There's a wrestling match taking on here. It's, it's really a wrestling match between two thrones, the throne of Pharaoh and the throne of the omnipotent God. Now, it's not really a match because uh, Pharaoh's got no chance of actually winning. But that being said, what we need to see here is there's a picture of a divine wrestling match taking place. What will be the outcome of the match? Well, I think you probably can already guess, but I'll say this much. It's not turning out well whatsoever for Pharaoh or for those who would choose to side with him. It's possible that, you know, it's done in the sight of Pharaoh. It's possible the dust hit him first. It's possible he was the first one uh, afflicted, inflicted, whatever you want to say, with this disease. Um, I, I don't exactly know what it was, but it, it would uh, it would seem that in Deuteronomy 28:27 it speaks that the Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. Um, there's a lot of a lot of descriptions given for these boils, or I guess for boils in general. They contain pus filled with ulcers. the The skin would would fester, um, uh, just being like burnt skin that then peels off. I don't know if you've ever been burned. I have. I've had third degree burns, and I'm telling you, it's not. Not only is it intensely painful. But it also is just disgusting to look at, and it stinks. Um, all of the above. But the point is as well that Pharaoh is left alone in this journey. Others cannot even stand before him, except for the very ones that he wouldn't want standing before him, um, which would be like Moses and Aaron. So, so this is the imagery happening in this sixth plague. But with the imagery, there's going to be great irony. And what is that irony? Well, the irony is that God um, is, is making the very curse of Israel, this kiln and their servitude, a blessing. And he's taking Egypt's very, if I can call it a blessing, making it their curse. So what is this irony? Well, um, look, look, look at verse, let's walk through verses 10 and 11 again. So they took the soot from the kiln, stood before Pharaoh, Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all of the Egyptians. So here's the irony, right? The irony is in verse 10, we've got Moses and Aaron standing before Pharaoh. But in verse 11, what does it say? It says the magicians could not stand before Moses. You see, this is the the the, the beautiful turning of the tables happening. Again, why could they not stand? Most likely because of their physical condition that it just was was too much. But all this talk of standing really brings in a much deeper spiritual significance. See, in Psalm 1 verse 5, we read that the wicked will not stand in the judgment. And this is a great picture of what happens when the wrath of God is poured out. See, when the wrath of God is poured out, you don't stand. You don't have a stand. Uh, we, we recognize even... um. 
in Philippians 2, 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, this is the turning of the table. See, he was seeking, Pharaoh was seeking to build his kingdom. But what's actually happening? The tearing down of his body through the very vehicle, the kiln that he thought would build his kingdom. He's seeking to promote his name. And instead of promoting his name, he's destroying his reputation. Why? Oh, his name is becoming a curse word in the land because of his unwillingness to repent. Um, there's, a, there, there's a very powerful quote by Adam Clark. Um, and, and he says this, A congruity between the crime and the punishment. The furnaces in the labor of which they oppressed the Hebrews now yielded the instruments of their punishment. I'll explain it in a minute. For every particle of those ashes, get that, every particle of those ashes formed by the unjust and oppressive labor seemed to be a boil or a blame on the tyrannical king and his cruel and hard-hearted people. All right, pause. That may have like just in reading it once been like, okay, what on earth? But wait, he says every particle of those ashes. I want you to think about this. Every particle, every particle as these ashes went throughout the land, what, is, what did it do? It became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. The more the particles of ashes, the more the boils. How do the particles of ashes even happen? Well, the burning of bricks, the preparation of their future. So the very work being done in these kilns actually, uh, with all irony, becomes the more the boils. The more the bricks, the more the boils. You see, bricks, boils. And, and this is the reality of... Um, serving the enemy of our soul. See, the enemy of our soul, it, it might seem to be prospering. It might seem to be yielding results. It might seem to be building our kingdom. But in the end, not only is it a disappointment, not only is it a failed uh, endeavor, but rather it's actually the very conduit of curse. Um, and, and we see this happen here. And so it goes upon all the Egyptians in verse 11. And then, of course, as we see this irony just kind of reach its peak with every particle of dust becoming boils in the land, we see this third and final point, and that is the inflexibility of Pharaoh. The inflexibility of Pharaoh. We have the imagery, we have the irony, but now we have the inflexibility. What is this inflexibility? Well, this is round six, and that's significant. You might say, why is that significant? Well, because we've had five rounds before, and you say that didn't help anything at all. Well, let me explain why I say that. Five in Scripture is a picture of grace. I'm not going to go into that, but five in Scripture is a picture of grace. And we, we saw um, in Plague 1, we see the, the bloody Nile. We see the death of fish. We see um, a lot of devastation on the land. What happened? Pharaoh hardened his heart. In, in Plague number 2, we saw the frogs. Pharaoh asked for prayer. Tomorrow, um, he gets some relief. Pharaoh hardens his heart. Plague three, we see those insects. Magicians claim it's the finger of God. Pharaoh refuses to listen. Plague four, the flies. Pharaoh says, okay, finally, like, let, just let him go, but for the wrong reason. As soon as the flies are gone, he changes his mind. Hard heart. Plague five, the livestock die. Again, Pharaoh's heart refuses to yield to the true king of eternity. So now six. And here in Plague 6, we have for the very first time this, I, this phrase, but the Lord hardened the heart 
of Pharaoh. Now, it had been predicted back in chapter 4, verse 21, but here we see it. Here we see the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He's been given five opportunities to obey, five opportunities to repent, five opportunities to yield, to step off the throne, but he doesn't. God's grace demonstrated over and over and over and over and over again. And yet Pharaoh was inflexible with God. He was unwilling to acknowledge and yield to the one who is truly in power. And so what we see come over Egypt here is not humanly explainable. It was miraculous in its method, taking soot from the kiln and throwing it in the air. It was miraculous in its timing. It happened exactly when God said it would happen. And it was miraculous in its exclusivity that it hit the Egyptians, not just everyone in the land. Dust does not differentiate between a certain people. And and so we see very clearly this is God's doing. And why? Because of the inflexibility of Pharaoh. But it's also obviously an attack on the gods of Egypt. Every single time we come to this point, because I I want you to see just all these gods of Egypt that are being torn down and shown to be nothing. Um, We have Amun-Re, Amun-Re, the creator god. By the way, one ancient text says this of him. He who dissolves evils and dispels ailments, a physician who heals. Hmm. Did you get that? That's Amun-Re. No, how much did he dissolve any evils, dispel ailments, or heal anyone? Point is, he is uh, he, he he has no power, no power in the light of the true God. We have Thoth, who we've mentioned before, by the way, a god of the healing arts. Serapis, the Egyptian god of healing. Isis, the Egyptian goddess of healing. Imhotep, the Egyptian god of medicine. Um, and he, he actually apparently became even more popular after the Exodus, although it sure seems like there was a failed job here. I don't know why it became more popular. We have Sekhmet, um, which, by the way, was one of those common deities when dealing with diseases. And there was a whole... Um, a whole fraternity, whole line that was formed off of Sekhmet. But anyway, the point being is we have all these gods of healing in Egypt and none, none could provide the cure that the people needed. And that's true of the gods of this world. Any god that you serve in this world, it will not give you what you need when you stand before the wrath of God. There's only one solution. There's only one remedy for a sick soul. And we're going to come to that in just a minute. So let me ask, how could Pharaoh have responded? What could have been the right result of this sixth plague? Well, the results of repentance, we actually see some examples. Examples of men who were in similar situations to Pharaoh. Not similar setup, but similar direct situation. I think of of David. David, when... um. Uh, He was a king, just like Pharaoh, and he suffered for his sins as well. But he said to God in Psalm 38, verses 3 through 5, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin, for my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. Wow. Humility. Brokenness willingness to acknowledge who is in 
the wrong and who is the true king what about job job obviously had an inflicted body and it wasn't due to sins of his own but because um not that he wasn't a sinner but but because the enemy of the soul um asked permission to inflict him and was given that permission now now let me say just remind you going back to job chapter one god started the conversation have you seen my servant job so just don't forget that god started the conversation but in starting the conversation the enemy um claimed that he only followed only worshiped only served god because God gave him everything he wanted. And so he was um, afflicted with these ailments. But what did Job say in Job 12, verses 9 and 10? Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Again, Job, David, acknowledging this is the heart of repentance, saying, I know who you are. And thus, I know who I am. And this is what Pharaoh is unwilling to do. But you know, the side of refusing repentance, that's the result of repentance. But what about the refusal of repentance? Well, the refusal of repentance is Galatians 6, 7, that we should not be deceived because God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. Is that not what we see in the kiln? Is that not what we see with the soot being thrown in the air? Whatever a man sows, they were sowing these bricks. They were sowing the slavery of Israel. Well, they reaped. They reaped. Hosea 8, 7, and I think the imagery is beautiful here. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. One more, Proverbs 22, 8. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. Friends, when we go through all these plagues in the book of Exodus, we should not forget that when we come to the book of Revelation, we have a mirror image of many of these plagues. And when we come to Revelation 16, 2, in the first of these bowl judgments, what do we read? So the first went out and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Again, wrath of God being poured out on the wicked. Um, but it, it's interesting. When we address this passage, if we were in a Jewish context, um, there is a midrash that really um, t speaks of Pharaoh, but it pulls out a verse from Proverbs 27 to refer to him. And I want to leave you with this illustration as I think it's quite um, potent. See, I grew up again in Senegal, West Africa. And in Senegal, we use um, this, which is called a mortar and a pestle. And it, it's actually in the Bible. Uh, what is a mortar and pestle used for? Well, you might put your parsley, you might put your garlic in, uh, in, in, the, in the mortar. And then what happens it gets ground. You put it in there and you pound it and you grind whatever in the mortar and you use the pestle to do it. And this is just a typical practice in the cooking of Senegalese, um, but also many other nations of the world, clearly all the way back in biblical times. Well, what does the Bible say about a mortar and a pestle? Well, Proverbs 27 verse 22 says this, though you grind a fool in a mortar, though you grind a fool in a mortar, grinding him like grain with a pestle, you will not remove his folly from him. See, even if Pharaoh is put in here and he's ground, he's ground, he's ground. Well, you're not going to remove uh, the folly from a fool. It's interesting because uh, 
some some rabbis a long time ago said this of him pharaoh and of all like him it is written crush a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain but the folly will not be driven out which means if you crush and chastise the fool with the strikes of afflictions and plagues and you give him alleviation by lifting up the pestle from the mortar his foolishness will not depart from him since he forgets all his plagues this is a vivid image for us to close on you see the inflexibility of Pharaoh is an unwillingness to repent, an unwillingness to recognize who is on the throne and who is in control. Proverbs 15.10 tells us, There is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way, who hates reproof will die. And of course, Proverbs 16.18 tells us, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now this might all seem very, very negative, but this whole episode has been on tables being turned and here's the beauty of the matter the beauty of the matter is the tables have been turned but maybe not exactly as you think you see romans chapter 6 verse 23 tells us this the wages of sin is death but what the free gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus our lord see the reality of our tables being turned is this you and i all had a table set before us of death why because the wages of sin is death we all had a table set before us that's condemnation we jesus it says in in john 3 17 that jesus didn't come to condemn the world but why he came because we were already condemned we were already in a state of condemnation um and i'll, I'll come back to that verse in just a little bit but notice on my table was judgment, but my table was turned. And how was my table turned? Well, my table was turned because God sent us his son. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He didn't need to condemn us because we were condemned already. But what do we have here? We have Jesus turning the table by saying, I'm going to take your sin. I'm going to take your judgment. I'm going to take your condemnation. I'm going to turn the table. And you can have my righteousness. You can have my purity. And you see, when we stand before the Father, we can stand in Christ alone in fact that's the only way to stand before the father if you're not in the righteousness of jesus christ you'll be just like those magicians you will not stand you will not stand in judgment this is my story and this could also be yours yes the tables were turned for pharaoh but the good news is the tables have been turned for us too if only we will receive the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if the tables have been turned for you, rejoice and live a life that shows the world the great mercy and grace you have received because what was before you before is no longer yours. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But remember, the choice is yours to make please check out www.intoyourbible.org for more resources. Go to our YouTube page, um, check out what we have to offer there, and please share it with others who it might encourage and uh, point 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, this has been Into Your Bible, and it is here that we seek a generation who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. Thanks for listening to Into Your Bible, the podcast, an extension of the ministry of Rock International. This is a place where we dive into the Holy Bible, seeking a generation who loves the Word of God and the God of the Word. Wherever you listen, subscribe to not miss an episode. And if you want to take things a step further, leave a review so others can find it too. For free resources, show notes, and more, check out our website at www.intoyourbible.org. Until next time, keep diving in.